Okay, questions? Not too long. Uh, preamble, please. Uh, okay. Go ahead. Speak up. Yeah, will you help me with the question? I, I won't be able to hear. So, come on up. Or, or someone with good ears can tell me. <laughs> I'll stand by you. So oh, good. <laughs> okay. I. Uh, he knows who I am, and Sakpa has uh, a good track record. My experiences for oppressing us and not not allowing us to have a freedom of expression in many, many issues, and you're talking about a very important issue, and I was given the wrong room number, and I apologize for that, and I also regret that I missed part of your presentation. But um, my first question, I take it you're familiar with Paul Martin? I'm not familiar with Paul Martin at all, uh, um, but I know, I know who he was. I've never met him. I can say that I was quoted in The Economist, the international news magazine, few years ago, and uh, whoever interviewed me from The Economist uh, also interviewed Paul Martin, and they said that he agreed with my analysis, but uh, that's all I know about Paul Martin. Okay, he was the prime minister that uh, was uh, uh, that uh, was there when uh, the uh, federal interlocutor for Métis uh, was put in place? Could be. It sounds right. Okay. And so what do you think of uh, a comment, maybe you're not familiar with it, but in a book that he wrote, he talks about how um, abolishing the Indian Act will do away with treaty rights. That's a direct quote from him. Uh, the second thing I'd like to ask you about is um, I... I think it's very difficult to address your many, many, many points. It's just like uh, Thomas Flanagan. He made so many outrageous um, contentions, and my head is just rolling with the things that you have said. But one of the things that uh, I will say is that I like the Indian Act because it puts in place something for our collective reality. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, like Walter Rudnicki said, abolishing the Indian Act, it's not that we don't like it, but it's a one-way road to termination. And when you look at things like uh, the Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, mm -hmm. they're talking about uh, individual rights. And nowhere do you see anything about collective rights. So um, I'd like you to comment um, or respond to that. <coughs> And um, one of the things when we've been uh, putting forward uh, things like uh, pagan water rights, we've been expected to prove certain things like, uh, uh, like what maybe set out in Baker Lake case and other things internationally about us being a people with a capital P. And I notice in your materials you spell... Uh, people, uh, the P's in lowercase. But we have our languages, we have our dialects. On the Pagan Reserve, there are several dialects. And the Métis people, we have common ground maybe with um, certain matters. And uh, I share um, your, uh, your endeavors to... Um, 
to do uh, things to, um, to keep your connection. But um, the Métis people in general do not have a language. They can talk about mischief, but it's uh, like Esperanto. It's been created. So there's a real inequality. We've been expected to, um, to prove a number of different things. And at the same time, there's all this biopiracy going on uh, about our cultural property rights. And, you know, like, so I think that really brings out the distinction between um, Métis people and, uh, let's say, um, our Pagan people. We're uh, on the north side, we're uh, the Pagan Indian band. Uh, and then there's the ones across the river or across the border. And uh, one other thing I'd like you to comment on, looking at some of the things that have been written. Um, I read something by uh, somebody out of Calgary, uh, a book in 2004, and I can't really um, say his name. It's kind of French. I think his first name was René. It started with F-U-M-O-L-E-A. Criminal? Yes. There's an oblate priest. Yes, and they talk about how, and then he was others looking at some of the, um, uh, the treaties up north, and they say that the Métis have a claim only when Indian title is being extinguished. So is that why uh, Métis people are being given a voice today? And I know, going back to what I said earlier, some Métis people... Um, I, um, I admire them for uh, the work they have done um, and wish them all the best with their endeavors. But some of them enfranchised under the Indian Act. And is it illegal for them to be claiming that they're Métis? Okay, thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, those are, you know, very, very interesting and very important questions, and, uh, and I'd like to answer each one uh, in turn, uh, as you've asked me to do. Uh, more than happy to do that. Um, first of all, uh, and I'll, I'll go by my notes. I hope I have them right, and please let me know if I've overlooked something. Uh, first of all, Paul Martin and his uh, proposal that Abolishing the Indian Act will be the end of the treaties. I, I reject that. Uh, it's not a conclusion that I would reach. Uh, my reasoning is that the law of the Constitution uh, guarantees the uh, constitutional status of the treaties, which means that no government can pass any law to do away with them. So there's absolutely no chance whatsoever. So if Paul Martin wrote that, he's just dead wrong. I think, uh, so far as I know, Paul Martin is a very rich steamboat man, you know, and so he's certainly not a legal expert. Uh, next, uh, I can say something about the United Nations Declaration of Rights of Indigenous Peoples. Uh, I participated in the United Nations process. Uh, leading up to the adoption uh, of the uh, declaration, so I'm intimately uh, familiar with it uh, and, and all of its, uh, its provisions. Uh, I can assure you, without any doubt, that the UN Declaration recognizes and affirms the collective rights of indigenous peoples. This is one of the very important issues that we fought over with representatives of various states. I'll cite in particular the United Kingdom government. I, myself, uh, played a small role in 
having discussions with uh, a number of people, including a member of the British House of Lords, in which we continue to make the point that these are collective rights and that they must find their way to the Constitution because the United Kingdom government refused to agree to the UN declaration in draft form at the time for the reason they said, you know, we don't, we don't, uh, we protect human rights and they're not collective rights. So I expected in 2007 when the declaration was voted in the General Assembly that the UK would oppose it. They didn't. I was, I was surprised. Wow, we won. They, they voted for the, the, the declaration. So if you look at the provisions, there's one that expressly recognizes the treaties. One of the obligations of states under the UN declaration is that a state must respect the treaties that are signed with the indigenous people. So the, the treaties as collective rights are recognized and protected by uh, uh, this uh, particular declaration. And in fact, if you look at the analyses of human rights scholars, you will see that the human rights system, which started in 1948 with the UN Declaration in San Francisco, uh, first generation rights, second generation rights, and so on. I'll simplify this. And that the third generation of rights is collective rights. Now, intellectually, some of this is very, very difficult to, to propose. And no one that I'm aware of in, on the planet has yet made a a really good argument to explain how that happens, but nevertheless, it is the case. Uh, on the next point about the father of Fimelo, I don't know if, he, if he's, he's still alive. I met the man uh, when, uh, when he was alive, and I've read the book, which is entitled, As Long As This Land Shall Last, as you know. It's great, uh, my, my version is a great cover. And it, it outlines the history of the signing of Treaty 8 and Treaty 11. And, and when I read that, I was appalled, absolutely appalled, at the conditions under which the people of Treaty 8 and Treaty 11 lived, you know, at the time of the signing of those treaties. And it's in part because of that that I, I condemned the approach of uh, Jim Prentice when he was a minister, when he was in opposition, and he opposed the signing of, of the modern uh, treaties with the uh, people up in the, in, in the treaty uh, 11, uh, 11 area on the uh, uh, your uh, comments uh, about the uh, Maiti people uh, I, I hasten to emphasize that it's very difficult to know who people are talking about simply when they use the term you know I grew up in a, a Michif community and no one had heard the term I think I don't think my father ever heard this this term Métis, you know, we have our own, our own language that we've been speaking for quite some time. But I've noticed personally that since then there's all kinds of people all over the place, including some scholars. I, I met two or three scholars, historians and so on, that I knew them as just ordinary Canadians that they've metamorphosed. Now they have a new identity and they're Métis people. So I, I, I don't know what motivates that and I don't know why they do that. Uh, I can tell you my personal experience that I've never had any advantages from identifying as a Métis people. In fact, I think I've had my nose broken a couple of times, uh, you know, over these, these sorts of clashes. But one is more generally recognized as, as an Indian. You know, people aren't all that sophisticated to recognize people for who they are. They don't ask any question. They hit first, maybe. But um, I do notice 
that there is what I view as an extremely regrettable approach of litigation in the courts dealing with so-called making rights. Uh, I would agree with that. There's a recent case here that you'll be familiar with. It's the Hearstcorn case. You will know that Hearstcorn, uh, someone by the name of Hearstcorn, I don't know that name. I have a lot of relatives. I know a lot of people uh, in what is now Manitoba, Saskatchewan, uh, uh, you know, that I'm related to. I can tell you about my relatives and so on, and everybody knows our families. I can recount the history of it. I've talked with elders who can recount the oral history from generations and generations ago. When I go to meetings uh, with elders, they tell me who I am. And I've had uh, experiences such as being recognized by elders in Treaty 4 in the Papel Valley and Saskatchewan. And we have relatives also in uh, some of the uh, bands in Manitoba all the way up to... My own father was a trapper, trapped up at Cumberland House and the par in that area. So that's who I am, that my folks are. These other people, I was really surprised when I saw the facts in Hearstcorn that people were making out some case for treaty rights because those sorts of claims were not at all supported by any of the history that I've read about and I've never heard of people out here. Someone wants to ask a question, so please let, please tell me to yeah, come on down. keep quiet when, uh, as long as you can hear, it's okay. Who is it? Is it like one, one MP in Parliament that brought this up? Like, where is this? All coming from it, who is like, who has the the proper authority to do this type of thing right now? Mm -hmm. Okay, sure. Thank you. Uh, she asked, "Is it okay to? Yeah. Is it okay to answer the question?" Yeah. Can you repeat the questions that people were Oh, thank you. Yes. She asks, um, "What is it about this uh, MP?" and his uh, authority or perhaps motivation to introduce Bill C-428, uh, you know, that I identify that way, uh, you know, the one that would make some amendments to the Indian Act. Uh, the answer is this, it's a private member's bill. It's not a government bill, but uh, so historically in Canada, private member's bill don't, 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 don't go anywhere. But unless they have the uh, the backing of the government of the day. And this one had the, the uh, MP is Rob Clark, and he is a member of Muscat uh, First Nation in uh, Saskatchewan. And my uh, speculation is that uh, the government uh, would have uh, promoted the idea of a private member's bill, so as to test the, test the water, as it were, to test you know, the, the reception, and then they can decide you know, whether or not to accept it. There have been hearings uh, on, on the bill. So, so that's, his authority comes from the, his authority as an MP, that anybody can make those sorts of changes. Uh, maybe I'll tell you very quickly some of the provisions. Most of the, there are two main things. One is that Bill C-428, which is not passed yet, would make changes to the Indian Act, uh, doing away with the requirement of ministerial authority uh, in, insofar as band council bylaws are not legally effective until they receive the approval of the minister. It would change that. Instead, 
the bylaws would become effective upon publication on a website. So, for, for, for example, the First Nations Gazette uh, would, would be one of the places where this could be published, you know, systematically. So that's the one thing. And the other thing is that the minister is required to report to a committee of parliament, the Aboriginal Affairs Committee, every five years, I think, on, on how that is working. And that the next part, uh, describing this generally, uh, does away with some of the provisions of the Indian Act, the, re the act that authorized the uh, residential schools. The other one, the prohibition of free trade from reserves that are mentioned uh, earlier. Uh, another one on wills, Indian wills, uh, which I opposed. And particularly, I, I was invited by the uh, House uh, Committee on Aboriginal Affairs to offer my opinion on Bill C-428, and I went through an analysis of it, and I told them that I don't think that's a wise amendment. Uh, you know, it's not up to me to decide whether it's a good thing or not, you know, to amend the act, you know. It's, it's, but I'm able to analyze, you know, the effects of these proposed amendments. And if the wills provision were to be simply eliminated, the legal result would be, in my assessment, that provincial wills legislation would apply. And that is not a good idea, because then that ignores the laws of the indigenous peoples. Now, I say that as a matter of constitutional law, the laws of indigenous peoples are insulated from unjustifiable infringements by the laws of a province. That's a very important point. There's a lot of constitutional gobbledygook behind it. But, uh, you know, so it would create a constitutional mess. And I think they listened because that's been dropped so far. If you look at the agenda, they've dropped that, you know, government said, oh yeah, this is way too complicated. We can't handle that. We didn't realize that. So they've dropped that now from the, you know, the, the, new, uh, the, the new version that they're publishing that you can look at. Uh, online. So that's a little bit about Bill C-428. If he can hear you, then you can tell me this. <laughs> I just have, wanted you to comment on, as a former student here at the university, I've had my share of arguments with non-native students who have this misconception that we don't pay taxes that the government pays us money once we so we don't pay for our education. As a mom that lives off reserve, I pay school fees for my son. The man does not look at us off reserve. Can you comment on the, the tax thing and the education so that the non-native students here understand when we argue and look at the class where we're coming from? Miigwech. Thank you very much. Uh, it's a very, very uh, important issue. And Certainly, one of those myths, you know, that I that I had in mind, you know, when I made my general observation, uh, it is the case that uh, uh, Indian people and all Indigenous people in Canada pay all sorts of taxes, and you know, taxes in this answer can be regarded in a, any uh, number of ways. But one of the narrow points in response uh, is uh, the. Uh, Section 87 of the Indian Act, which, which provides for some limited conditional tax exemption. Uh, Section 87 provides that the, the property of an Indian on a reserve is exempt from taxation. And uh, 
That's it. So as you pointed out, uh, if your property is not situated on a reserve, then it is, uh, it is taxable. Uh, it's a very limited uh, exemption. It's been subject to quite a bit of litigation. Uh, complex, the courts have been developed by connecting factors, tests to determine, well, they don't really know how to handle this, so they develop these complex tests, and then they, by and large, it gives the judges a lot of control, because what they can do then is decide on each case, you know, what they want the result to be, and then they, there was a, they designed a test for it. Uh, you know, in another lecture, I could talk about my great disappointment uh, with the abandonment of traditional legal methodology in Canadian uh, courts, but I won't. Uh, so, uh, uh, I, don't, I don't think I should say much more than that, you know, at this particular point, unless there are particular questions, but I certainly uh, strongly endorse, you know, what you have said. Uh, it is a myth uh, that you know, people get all these things for free, and, you know, tax exemptions and so on. That's, that's very far from, from the reality. Uh, my name is Leroy. I, I'm a former chief of Siksikan Nation and bank counselor. I, I've been around the political arena for just over 20 years. After my wife completed her education, I, I decided to come back to school, so I'm a student. Mm. I'm speaking as a student, and I'm, I want to ask you, just from my experience and my observation, and all of the rhetoric that's involved around the composition of the Indian Act, whether we should abolish it, whether we should reform it, amend it, etc., etc., and knowing the history behind the philosophy of, of implementing the Act was aimed at assimilation. Why are we so consumed around the Indian Act when indigenous people always seem to take the position of as sovereign nations? How can you be sovereign on one hand and be managed and controlled under the auspices of a federal government through the Indian Act legislation. It's very, very frustrating to be in a leadership position where you have bureaucrats and, and, and the people in Parliament dictating how you should expend your own resources, whether they come from your, your natural resources, renewable, non-renewable, and those things that are owing to our communities through treaty arrangements. You know, Canada exists because of treaties. It's based on nation to nation. And then you have this Indian Act after the fact that was implemented for the very purpose of assimilation. It's oppressive. It, it's betrayed us. It's denied us. You know, there's been some references to, to economic opportunities. It perpetuates poverty. I know that for a fact. And, and so for me, my thinking is, why are we wasting our time debating over this legislation that's going to eventually make, terminate us through 6-1 or 6-2 of the Indian Register? That's, that's the objective of, the, of the, the Indian Act. We become no longer Indians in the eyes of the Canadian government. Why can't we look at some options that give us a, a position or a foundation based on sovereignty? All of the, the supporting documents associated to that are there. The UN declaration, case laws, etc. The frustrating part is, is, is this. I've introduced these ideas to, to my colleagues in my former life, 
to, to initiate a, a, a master plan. But it's come to the point where many leaders in this country have become complacent because of this whole assimilation scheme. They don't care anymore. You know, they don't care anymore, or at least at the time they did they didn't seem interested in, well, let's develop a, a constitution that defines our distinctiveness. Let's define our sovereignty. Let's develop this Blackfoot constitution. And let's convert it into the Blackfoot language and let's create our own laws, sacred laws, contemporary laws, etc. Yet we're so bombarded with this Indian Act legislation, First Nations Education Act, the OC 45, or uh, what is it, 45? 428, or, yeah, 45 yeah, was one of them. All of this yeah. bill, you know, all, all of that, that information that, that threatens the, the Indian Act. Mm-hmm. And, and so for me, I'm thinking, you know, we're supposed to be nations. We didn't get conquered. You know, our, our relationship with this, this government in Canada is based on nation to nation. What happened to that? Why can't we get back to... to the basics and, and form that, that sovereignty position. Then we'll go back to renegotiating the treaties or whatever the terms of the treaties would be with each nation across the country. That's my position. Otherwise, I, I don't support the Indian Act. And, and I'm only speaking from experience. Thank you. Jimmy uh, thank you very much uh, for those comments. Uh, which... Uh, which I respect tremendously because in your life you've had the responsibility, political responsibility, and uh, you have that experience. There's a tremendous difference between uh, an analyst like myself who has no political responsibility or accountability to speak. And I try to take that responsibility seriously, and you've heard me say today, it's not for me to decide you know, whether to amend the act or to get rid of it. You know, I said I can provide an analysis that may or may not assist other people to make those decisions. So uh, I recognize your, your experience and, and your views, and uh, thank you for the question. And if I may make some brief comments in reply. I certainly take the view, as I believe you do, that the treaties are the foundation of Canada. And one of the reasons for that is that the treaties themselves contain ideas that think can bridge both worlds. One of them, and I've written about this in, in, uh, in law journals, uh, so I'm not making it up, uh, you know, for the purpose of this, for this answer, it's already published, uh, that the fundamental law of Canada recognizes the fundamental significance of consent as a basis for constitutional legitimacy. The courts have said, those governed by a constitution should agree with it not all that difficult. So I think the treaties represent, you know, a, a, a forum for consent. And I, and I argue, I have argued, that today one could go to the court and ask the court to issue a declaration requiring the government to come to the table, not to have unelected, appointed judicial civil servants decide what is the meaning of the treaties, but rather get those judicial civil servants to require the government to come to a good table, negotiate with treaty representatives, you know, what the treaty means today. Uh, on the uh, other question you asked uh, rhetorically, I suppose, is 
it's about the act and you know why it is not I think it's you know political unity you know things get done because people can do them you know I mentioned the past system they didn't need any laws to do it so po- political power means means almost everything and and so I think with political unity you could at least augment the political influence uh, of First Nations to do things like change or eliminate uh, the, uh, the Indian Act. We have a lot of good recommendations, but, you know, people like me and others are not going to make those kinds of decisions. It's, it's up to First Nations to make those decisions and, you know, you know about it. Uh, one of the... I certainly... Um, pay attention to your point about the design of First Nation constitutions. In fact, I was telling Leonard earlier that this is one thing I'm doing next week, working with a First Nation, designing its own constitution. You know, and I argue that as a matter of constitutional law, uh, the constitutions of First Nations that are developed based on their authority to do so, because I say, I argue, and the law of the constitution is that, protects those indigenous laws. You know, those indigenous laws were continued by the law of the Constitution. They were not done away with. So they continue, and they're alive today. And so one method, as you've pointed out, is the design of uh, own Constitution. It's something that's happening in Canada now. It's happened numerically mostly in the modern treaties, you know, where the people have designed their own Constitution. But... Some First Nations, like the one I'm working with next week, they're, they're doing that, even though they have, you know, historic treaties. So they're thinking, you know, the way that your comments go to. But certainly one of the big challenges always is, is economic, you know, financing. And the regrettable fact that many First Nations live under a system where they don't have, don't have their own source of revenues and sources of, of, of uh, their own resources to maintain a government and establish and maintain uh, their laws and to make them effective. So this is a big break on, you know, advance, advances in that area because people have to be, have to be practical. And the government doesn't really care about the membership in the Indian Act. The government has really no political interest in, you know, who's an Indian. They only have one interest, and the interest is in money. How much is it going to cost? You know, so you see all the membership codes in that, they generally exclude people not not status for for money reasons because the government isn't going to give any money. So, but to thank you for those observations, which of course, uh, you know, I can't comment on. I just accept them. Uh. Can we say Go something ahead. about the woman that's hey, 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 Can you comment on uh, the James Bay and on the Quebec agreements when it comes to um, revenue generation? The which we're talking sorry. about um, uh, generating revenues. Mm. Uh, can you comment on the northern uh, the James? Comment Bay? on what? I'm sorry, I, I don't hear that. Uh, can you comment on northern Quebec? There are northern Quebec On northern Quebec. Well, I, I can. Presumably, you have in mind the James Bay and Northern Quebec Agreement, you know, from 1975, as it has been amended and expanded over the years. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Um, well, I, I, I can't say too much, but I can make some general statements, uh, descriptive, uh, not evaluative. Uh, the James Bay Agreement, which has been called the James Bay Treaty, 
that it has been recognizing uh, recognized as having constitutional status as a treaty, as do the modern, the other modern treaties that are being negotiated and some of them finalized, particularly in the province of British Columbia. Uh, the Cree there, uh, and uh, you know Matthew Kunkum is a name that many of you will have heard. He was national chief, and you know has a long history in, in uh, political involvement, and particularly in the James Bay. He has uh, has Ted Moses, and Ted was one of the individuals that James Bay, Northern Quebec Cree have uh, status at the United Nations. You know, as a non-governmental organization. So they they've been one of the pioneers amongst indigenous peoples to work at the United Nations. So I just want to acknowledge that. Uh, they, they, they have been able to uh, influence the economics and thereby influence political decision making by astute use of, of uh, techniques, strategies, and alliances. For example, Matthew, once, one time in Ottawa, introduced me to... Uh, a young Kennedy, the one that's an environmentalist and goes around, one of Robert Fitzgerald Kennedy's boys. I forget his first name, but anyway, Robert, uh, Robert Kennedy. So he's, he's well known. So he's one of the folks that, you know, the James Bay Cree, uh, you know, recruited to assist them to lobby, lobbying in the United States, you know. And one of the things that they do, which uh, other First Nations are looking at, including in, in British Columbia, is to use the f market forces to try to uh, influence decisions in favor of their particular interests. And the way, uh, legal uncertainty is not good for the market. So if you can litigate and create the measure of legal uncertainty, you can wipe off capital value from international corporations. And a colleague of mine told me that uh, an analyst told him, it's a couple years ago, I think, uh, that the Hulkaminum Treaty Group had been successful in wiping out, uh, I forget, several million off the uh, share values of this particular corporation because of the uncertainty that was generated by a formal petition before the Organization of American States and American Commission on Human Rights. Sorry to give you all these names, but there's nothing else that I can do. Uh, so anyway, it, it, you know, so that, but that's a little bit of the story of you know, James Bay Cree in a rough way. And more recently, what they've done is something... Uh, pioneering in Canada, which is the creation of a regional government, and you may have read about that. So the original idea came out of that treaty in 1975. Gives you an idea of how patient you have to be if you want to implement, you know, the the, the, the ideas and the terms in uh, in, in these uh, modern agreements. You know, never mind historic agreements. But thank you for your question. Any other questions? We have one over here. Any other ones? Go ahead. Andrew Here's another experienced man. <laughs> I have a uh, three-point question in relation to uh, natural resources. And uh, <clears throat> I, have a, I have an idea already, but I just want to ask you in a public forum. What's the uh, what's blocking the Enbridge pipeline? As you know, we've mixed the newspapers, the business pages of the newspapers almost daily. 
I uh, want to get your opinion on that. Uh, I have an idea why, why it's not going through. And thirdly, um, I was at a conference uh, two, three weeks ago up in Edmonton. It, it, it was dealing with the legal duty to consult. Mm -hmm. And one of the First Nations representatives, uh, the Minister for Aboriginal Affairs for the Government of Alberta, he was there to present on the latest developments within the Ministry of Aboriginal Affairs. And he was asked point blank, is it on the table for the Alberta government to have uh, resource revenue sharing with First Nations under the treaties? Because as you know, there's three treaties in Alberta. And his blunt answer was no. That was it. So no, no, further, no further comment on that. And uh, so, do we have a uh, a right to natural resources revenue under the treaties and the Canadian Constitution and other instruments like the UN Declaration of Indigenous People's Rights? And finally, is the NRTA a fundamental breach of the treaties? Huh. Thank you. Uh, Thank you, Andrew. Uh, very important and uh, complex questions. I, I'll do my best to answer them very briefly in circumstances. Uh, the first one is the easiest. I don't know. <laughs> I can speculate like a lot of people, but I'm not privy to enough you know, information to be able to give you, uh, you know, a sensible answer to your important question, what is blocking the Enbridge pipeline. On the duty to consult, I can say a bit more. Uh, um, I view that duty to consult as an idea that the court is seized upon because it it tried to it, what what the court is trying to do in a very loose and general way is to bring the government to the table to negotiate working arrangements on treaties and on other issues. It's the only way to do it. A court has no capacity, is not competent to design uh, a legislative scheme or anything like that. And, and they're, they're not legitimate anyway. Uh, so the thing is for, you know, decision makers, uh, representative, to settle these things. And that's what the court is trying to do because it doesn't know what to do. Those judges are just people. They don't really know what to do. So back in... You know, 20 years ago, the court seized on this idea from private law, the trust, trust relationship. And then you heard all kinds of people, fiduciary, oh my God. No one should talk about things like fiduciary because to understand what it means, you need to understand English legal history. You know, the ideas comes from the history and culture of the English. You know, and I, I said when they came out with that idea, I said, it's not going to work. It's not going to work. It was developed for private relations amongst the English. It's not going to work for treaty relations or for relations between indigenous peoples and the state. It's not going to work. And it didn't. And so for the courts, it doesn't. You hear a lot of loss, you know, from the courts about it. So they developed this new thing, which is not quite legal. It's not quite constitutional. If you're looking at the more recent cases, it's something called the honor of the crown. Well, what is that? It's kind of like the English thing. A gentleman's honor, you know, a gentleman's word is, you know, as good as whatever. It's that kind of thing, you know. So sometimes too much is made of it. The, the courts often 
when they're faced with these sorts of cases, they say, oh, they say these things, and a lot of people get really interested. Oh, this is really good. But I know one thing about the courts. They've made those general statements. After that, every case that comes down, they're going to narrow it down. And that's what they've been doing now with all sorts of things, including the duty to consult. And I'll predict something here, which is that what you'll see happening in the near future, I think, I expect anyway, the provinces will create administrative tribunals and will give them the authority to look after this duty to consult thing. You just, just mark my word. See if that happens in the next few years. Uh, so, um, you asked the other question, uh, is there a right uh, regarding resource revenue sharing? A very tough question. The politics is way more important than law. You know, ultimately, particularly when important things are involved, very expensive things and so on, how to change the status quo, politics is way more important than law. In the long run, political legitimacy trumps legal legitimacy. It doesn't matter what's legal. What you can get away with is what is more important. You know, and look at the history of the world. That's, that's the way things are. So uh, you look in British Columbia, yes, there's revenue sharing. Hundreds of millions of dollar deals are signed, revenue sharing between individual bands and, and, and uh, gold mining companies and so on, but not in other provinces. Why is that? Politics, political power. So sometimes I hear people say, and I've heard this for decades, all you need is a political will. Well, what that means really is that the speaker does not have the capacity to influence that decision. So the, one of the important projects for indigenous people is to develop the power, the capacity to influence decisions that matter, you know, because they affect their, their interests. Is the NRTA a breach of the treaty as a matter of treaty? Manifestly so. Uh, as a matter of constitutional law? No. Uh, that's because of the Badger case, which was decided in, in Alberta. One must always remember when you see these decisions of the courts which say what was done is done and we'll leave it there, is that they are the courts of Canada. I say to people, if uh, First Nations want to go and talk to the government, there are two doors to go in. One is the executive door. You go in there and you talk to politicians and perhaps bureaucrats. The other one is the courts. You see the judges there. But it's the same thing. The courts are one of the arms of government. You know, you know, so uh, it's, it, you shouldn't be surprised. A lot of people seem to be surprised when they get the decisions that they do. But you're hardly going to ever see a court make a decision that will upset budgets in a very significant way. You know, so the courts defer to the executive and to the legislative uh, branches of government for a lot of these, a lot of these decisions. So I don't expect that the courts would ever make a decision. You know, that would open up, you know, a dispute about the legal uh, entitlements of First Nations with respect to natural resources. I can certainly make some constitutional arguments, uh, you know, and they can be made, and I think they're based on solid constitutional principles. Do I believe the judges would accept them? Not likely, because ultimately the courts are there to protect the status quo and to change it just a little bit. And if you want a, an example of what I'm talking about, look at the important Marshall fishing case, you know, that happened back in the early 2000s, uh, you know, somewhere late 1900s. Uh, you know, all hell broke loose, as it were. You know, people went fishing, and the RCMP boats were ramming them. It was on TV. 
I remember I was in Australia at the time, and even over there you had this coverage of our, the RCMP and boats going all over the place. And the court right away issued it a very unusual declaration, uh, decision. Right to follow up on that. Why? Because the, the judges have to protect their legitimacy. They have a very important ro uh, role in maintaining the rule of law. Therefore, they can't go too far. If they go too far, and there's people with political influence who don't like what they decide, they're going to ignore them. So uh, the judges have their own purpose and reputations at stake. They can't make decisions that will really rile up the powerful people. And you only have to look at other countries where the politicians don't care much what the judges say, you know, to understand how the principle works. So thank you very much, Andrew, for those really interesting uh, comments. I'll allow one more question. We have one here, but I'll allow one more question before if anybody wants to ask one question. Okay. Well, there is one here. Oh, okay. Okay, Mama. Um, hi. I, if you can, I was wondering if you could um, comment on the recent budget cuts by the federal government on land claim resolutions, research for land claims resolution, and maybe why is it so why it's so difficult for First Nations to seek justice through the claims process? And is the tribunal the answer, or is it too difficult for First Nations to even reach the tribunal because of these funding cuts? Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure what you're referring to about those uh, particular uh, uh, budget cuts. Uh, which ones do you have in mind? Well, the government, I think it was just recently, they passed, I think it was like 35 to 60 percent um, to organizations that do research on land claims litigation. Okay, so those are organizations. They, they've also um, limited the amount of money that the specific claims tribunal can given its decisions, for example, and those sorts of claims. So uh, it's a very difficult question, you know, why is the government cutting back on, on money? Uh, I, I suspect, you know, my only view is that uh, much of it is uh, maybe generated by uh, reasons of ideology, and I think some of those uh, kinds of decisions are ill-advised, such as the budget cuts to uh, representative organizations and so on, because there's real political value uh, to the purposes of those kinds of organizations, and I think if those cuts were to be maintained, it, it would uh, be to the disadvantage of the uh, government. You know, so. Uh, but I think ideology prevails uh, quite a bit sometimes over, uh, you know, over sound, sound, sound uh, analysis. Go ahead. Uh, I'm sorry that uh, that uh, woman left. She asked about taxation and uh, matters and and so forth. And I think that you made reference to myths. I think that it's also important to note that there are real stereotypes. Uh, as a pagan, we're supposed to remain poor. We can't make money. And uh, and it's something that. Um, that people don't even question. And I'll give an example. On the Pagan Reserve, there's a farmer uh, just outside of Pitcher Creek. And uh, he started off uh, very small. Uh, the old man has died. There's his son who's up in years, and there's a grandson. And the thing is, they um, 
they've hired some pagans, and they're knowledgeable about the whole uh, process of farming when you uh, plan, uh, plan on your seeding. It starts in January, and um, the kind of grain that you're going to have and all that. And they have these great big super bees. Uh, they have long stacks of grain covered with plastic, and I don't know, he has lots of rows. He not only farms reserve land, pagan reserve land, he farms lands off the reserve. But on the pagan reserve, he farms 19,000. And I don't know how much he's paying an acre, uh, but it is nothing in comparison to the money he is making. And a recent controversy is on the blood reserve. There's also one farmer, and I hear that he's farming 57, 59,000 acres, and he's paying about $80 an acre. And with one of those super bees, I think a few years ago, they were uh, hauling canola. One super bee uh, loaded with grain is about 60,000. And if you look at the 59,000, it's only 4 million. How come we cannot make money? I live on a reserve, and I have many, many experiences. And I know that, and our language I'll refer to it, the ones that echo the government and industry, they are the ones that get jobs. We don't get the jobs. And we are qualified. We've had many pagans that have had to go elsewhere. But I have chosen to stay there for other reasons. And we ha uh, Stan is one of the people that could have been uh, a CEO. But no, they hired Leroy for a while there. And then they let him go because there's so much happening. And you're talking about constitutions. There are many fallacies of equivocation. And if we're going to talk about a political constitution, you look at the ones made by U.S. tribes and uh, First Nations in Canada. It's the people who give their power to the elected uh, representatives so they can have capacity to deal with land matters. And they, in turn, form corporations. And we become the, uh, dispossessed. So my question to you is, the Indian Act, uh, it's a strange thing, but it deals with reserves. And if the Indian Act is abolished, uh, what's going to happen? Um, our, uh, our First Nations uh, who have a connection to their land base going to be dispossessed? Or is there some wonderful solution? so that we can have our collective rights. And you talk about DRIPS. There was also a study by Martinez, a UN treaty study. And DRIPS, the last article, talks about territorial integrity. And our treaties are about lands and resources. And I wondered, you know, when I found, I actually read the report, I heard about it. I heard it was set up under human rights uh, regimes for the UN. Uh, I wonder why people go into Geneva and talk for us. Because treaties deals, treaty matters deal with lands and resources. And my last point is, you haven't extend, uh, answered my question. If 
and Métis enfranchised under the Indian Act, is it illegal for them to be claiming something today? Thank you. Okay, I'll try to do my best very, very, uh, in the time available. Um, as you, I think, uh, mentioned, uh, there are fundamental differences between constitutions in the United States and in Canada. The Constitution of Canada is very different from the Constitution of the United States and the constitutions of American Indian tribes, at least the federally recognized American Indian tribes, and the constitutions of First Nations in Canada are absolutely very different. When you look at the Indian constitutions in the States and Canada, they don't deal with the powers of government. They only deal with the legal capacities of elected entities to deal with land actors. Okay, I'll I'll leave it there. Um, I've I've looked at uh, constitutions, in particular the... uh, Constitution of the Navajo uh, people have been a window rock a few times and spoken with quite a number of the government people and uh, their case is indeed uh, uh, very uh, very interesting. Uh, you asked a question uh, about you know if the act is abolished then what the answer is well it depends on what else is done. Uh, by way of example the Federal Royal Commission of Aboriginal Peoples um, which I was a member, made a range of recommendations in five volumes of a final report. Uh, so there are many, many options that are possible. I don't have the time now to deal with them. The difficulty with the United Nations, your other point, is that the United Nations has no forum to provide effective redress for anything. There's a little bit of mythology at work there sometimes about some particular questions. The only option that I'm aware of that First Nations in Canada have for putting a little bit of political pressure on the federal government is the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights, which has headquarters in Washington, D.C. And the Hulkamanum Treaty Group on Vancouver Island right now has had its uh, petition accepted. So that's you know something you might see in, see in the news. Um, uh, enfranchised uh, native people uh, there are a number of cases, they're mostly old cases about that, and there's never any bar to people moving in and out of you know, status and so on uh, historically. Uh, so the question is very, very, very complex. And I could go through the cases and that. It would be quite some, it would be a fairly lengthy exposition that I'd have to, uh, to engage. And you may have in mind discussions that may have happened in the province of Alberta because of the Cunningham case, which is a, a case dealing with a specialized issue on the Alberta Métis Settlement Supper on Treaty 8. I'll just conclude by uh, citing the observation of uh, Joe Dion, who's a creep from Treaty 8, and what he said to the commission that led to the legislated provincial, by provincial law, creation of the Métis Settlements there. He said, uh, all those Métis people, they said, they're really enfranchised Treaty 8 Indians. You know, so uh, these questions are, you know, really, really, really complex. And in order to provide, you know, a, a reasonable answer, one has to examine the particular facts very carefully and then, you know, come out with a relatively narrow 
narrow answer because uh, the issues are, as I said, so so very complex that there's very little that I can say in general terms that would be helpful. Thank you very much for your for your observations. And